With the World Cup just over a month away, the coming three months will be a time of frantic activity for the Springboks. In this podcast, I try to unravel the tangle of cultural, national, and emotional factors that give them meaning to us as South Africans. Why do they mean what they do? And why is it that the Springboks mean so much? Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. I was born in 1964 and became aware of the Springboks from a young age. I can't have been more than seven or eight when I saw a colour photograph of Frick Dupuyer for the first time. With the ball clamped to a Goliath hand, Frick was impressive enough. He looked both good-natured and menacing even in the photo, but more impressive by far was his jersey. We hadn't been introduced. This was the fabled green and gold. We are rightfully suspicious of backward-looking sentiment, and so we should be, for excessive sentiment is a kind of caricature of life. White South Africa is set fast in the aspect of nostalgia, addicted to the consolations of yesterday like there is no tomorrow. And so I realize in saying what I'm about to say that I expose myself to all kinds of objection. Then again, the green of Frick's jersey and the rich gold of the collar, the almost white of the frost-bitten field, All these things made a profound impression upon me aged seven or eight. It was as though a shooting star had shot across the great black emptiness of my young mind. The green and gold didn't make so much of an impression on me that I became a Springbok zealot then and there. Being young is about growing, and I was growing towards other colors, other lights. My tenth birthday fell shortly before the Saturday, on which Transvaal played against the 1974 British Lions at Ellis Park, and my birthday party was held that Saturday afternoon. Television hadn't yet arrived in South Africa in 1974. That only came two years later, and when we weren't stuffing our faces with cupcakes at my party, we were listening to commentary of the match on a little portable radio on a table in the garden. There must have been about seven or eight boys at my party. As far as we were aware, girls hadn't been invented. And it made sense to play a game of rugby ourselves because one of my friends had brought along a miniature rugby ball. The question was, who would be Lions and who would be Transvaal? A friend and I had no hesitation in choosing to be Lions. Both of our fathers had been born in England after all two Lions versus five or six Transvaalers. It wasn't a fair fight, either in the tight or in the loose. Clue? The impromptu game played to the sound of the radio didn't finish to all of us shaking hands and trooping off to drink tea. So there I was, aged ten. Was I a Springbok or a Lion? A Lion or a Springbok? By the time the two played again in 1980, I was faux sophisticated enough to be jaded. I could be snide. Rugby was passé, a game for Cro-Magnons and those who were unable to string a coherent sentence together. My cynicism, of course, was a sham, a great emptiness conferred upon the world. But little did I know it then, 
with cynicism I was protected. When I eventually grew up, there was only one team to support and they didn't wear red. The love affair was gradual, almost too gradual to be termed an affair at all. As a result, I can't pinpoint exactly when I fell in love with the Springboks. I can't, for instance, say that I was smitten on such or such a day, or that, religiously, I honour that day every year as a kind of anniversary, because it didn't happen like that. What I can say with absolute certainty, however, is that my love for the national rugby team is slow and cumulative, and is not separate from other people's love and admiration. That we love something together, something uniquely South African, is important in my loyalty because, let's not forget, crisis is never far away with the box and Springbok rugby in general. We could lose to Japan or Italy. A book coach might talk a language entirely of his own invention. A book coach might be recalled from a European tour to explain himself to the mandarins in Crimpoline, whose only real worry is their honorariums. There could be a racial spat masquerading as something really important. I like the fact that on days before match days, and that on match day itself, you see random strangers wearing replica book jerseys, although I would be hard-pressed to wear one myself. A small charge of recognition passes between me and the man, or the woman, who I see wearing a Springbok jersey, this year's model or not. Whether it's in the mall or on the high street, or on some folk on the back of a bucky at an intersection, the jersey brings strangers together, if only for a fleeting instant. In our fraught, leaderless, and often difficult-to-understand country, a fleeting recognition of that which binds us, rather than that which tears us apart, is not to be sniffed at. It is not an occasion for knowingness or world-weary cynicism, but rather just the opposite. At times like these, or at times like these, in which I'm trying to make sense of this for myself and for you, dear listener, it can feel that the Springboks are like a lodestar in a frighteningly dark night. If the definition of having power over people is to make them do things they wouldn't ordinarily do, the Springboks have a strange power over many of us. It is a power, when we pause to think about it, out of all proportion to what winning an international rugby match really means in emotional or spiritual or even intellectual or economic terms. Example, we set aside time in our busy weekends to watch them. Some of us, the real bitter Andes, even watch the highlights repeatedly afterwards, watching a Villy LaRue skip pass and a Cheslin Colby dive into a kind of doom loop of diminishing returns. The fact is that highlights become progressively lower the more you watch them. If you aren't careful, before long you're underground, in a rabbit hole where you've forgotten what it is that you're watching and why it struck you as interesting to begin with. Second example, I once sat with friends at a trestle table in a pub by the sea, waiting for a home test to start on the television above our heads. It was winter and the rain had managed to work a little gap in the roofing over our heads and drip down our noses and into our beer. I didn't know everyone in the pub, and although I can only assume their demographic, I suspect that my fellow Springbok supporters on this occasion were well-heeled, educated folk 
with the leisure time and disposable income to spend a couple of weekend hours talking shit, watching television and drinking beer. These people weren't strangers to irony or world weariness or that suburban staple served with every meal and braai. Complaint. But when it came for the national anthems to be sung, everyone stopped talking and stood up smartly. The waitron stopped in a kind of suspended animation. We all sung the anthems, or, if we didn't all sing the anthems, we clenched a fist and passed our forearms across our chest and basked for a moment in the gusto-filled pleasure of singing a song we all knew. It was a moment that made you want to bang on the table and bellow. Where else in today's slick age would you find such abandon, such basic, throat-emptying, reckless abandon? And all for young men called Kurt Lee, and Eben, and Kitsi, and, this one really kills me, Malcolm Marks, and what they do over eighty crunching minutes on distant fields often far away from home. One of the things I love about rugby and the Springboks is that the game is still so widely played across the length and breadth of the land. Cricket is dying in the provinces, most notably in the border and the Eastern Cape, while rugby is played pretty much everywhere, from the smallest pondok to the most sprawling private school. Such reach means that when you stand up for the anthem with rain dripping into your beer, you understand intuitively that there are people everywhere in South Africa doing much the same thing. Specific details might change. But whether it's in a tavern or an old age home, a club, a shabeen or a sports bar, they are all there for the same thing. This in itself is precious. Think about it. We gather for the same thing so seldom. Maybe for a christening or a funeral or a wedding, perhaps for a family occasion. But gatherings between strangers, across space and age and class and race, are relatively unusual. The books encourage us to gather and pause and hope, and we are momentarily better for it. You can be cynical about this. You can offer a critique of the idea of the Springboks and an idea of the nation-state as being feigned reality, feigned meaning. But I, for one, prefer not to think this. I prefer to nurse my beer and wait until Cheslin dances like a firecracker down the touchline before making Owen Farrell or Marcus Smith look like a blind man groping for the security of the stairs. Not only do Springbok fans come from far and wide, Springboks themselves come from far and wide. Franz Malherbe comes from Bredasdorp, very close to Cape Agulhas, the continent's southernmost tip, while Faf de Klerk and Duane Vermeulen were both born in Nelspreet in the far north. Like them, Jasper Visse is a northerner. He comes from Uppington, up there on the Orange River, close to the border with Botswana. Peter Steff de Toy comes from just outside of Malmesbury in the Swatland. Makazole Mapimpi comes from Mdatsani, the sprawling township outside of East London. Archia Sneeman comes from Potchestroom, Franco Mostert from Brits, Kwaka Smith from Leidenburg, at the foot of the Long Tom Pass in Umpumalanga. Many a town you might ordinarily drive through, or ordinarily not give a second thought to, have produced a springbok or will produce one soon.
For rugby-playing boys, the dream remains. Their hearts pulse strong. This I can only equate with magic. Lucanio Am was educated at secondary school level at Hoer School de Fos Milan in King Williamstown. Colloquially known as Fossis in King, the school motto is maintain and build. I'll say it again to allow its significance to sink in, maintain and build. Am remembers that Fossi's main rugby achievement in his final year at school was beating Winterberg, the agricultural high school in nearby Fort Beaufort, which in turn is not far away from Fort Hare University, where some of the finest intellectuals this country has produced were nurtured to political maturity. He was proud to have played first-team rugby, he has said in interview, because at Forsyth, you were allowed to wear your first-team scarf. As a rugby player, Um is full of straight-faced cheek. Who could forget the audacity of his behind-the-back pass to Spoo in Corsi in the test away to the All Blacks a couple of seasons ago? Before Nkosi himself dummy to Damien Dialendi, before actually passing to him as the burly centre dotted over. It's difficult to know what temporal universe Um operates in, but you need oodles of time to pull off that kind of shit. Not only that, but it's disrespectful. Rugby is about nothing if not a code of honour, and pulling off a behind-the-back pass at the All Blacks is rather like hitting Jimmy Anderson for six or sneaking the ball between Thibaut Courtois' legs. And who can forget Um's pass to Mapimpi in the World Cup final in Yokohama in 2019? Um's pass off his left shoulder while he was looking in the opposite direction was sublime, rather like pulling a face at your teacher in primary school, not behind her back, but to her actual face. We might enjoy Eben taking clean ball in the line-out, or Malcolm wedging himself into the back of a rolling mall. We might enjoy watching Andre Pollard take crash ball, or Fuff busy himself like a radioactive poodle, bringing down opposition locks twice his size. But nothing can compare to Um's dastardly trickery. There are places for everyone in the Springbok side, from the grunts to the high-wire artists like Colby, just like there is a place for everyone in the country we call home. Much of international sport doesn't feel feasible anymore. It's frequently played by overpaid prima donnas who only behave because bad behaviour might get in the way of their achievement and it looks very bad on television. They're cynical for the most part in the industry, widespread athletics doping and doping in the Tour de France, anyone, that has grown up around them is corrosively cynical too, a machine which shows no sign of stopping or slowing down. Much international sport seems remote. To me, the Springboks never seem remote. They're on a human scale. They seem feasible. I like that. An entire social media industry of Instagram posts and who they're married to and what they're worth has grown up around them, but this is of no consequence to me. They haven't ballooned so far out of reach that I feel it wrong to occasionally use their first names. Hell, they're virtually members of the family. One of the consequences of this lack of feasibility is that international sport nowadays is watched and followed in a kind of penumbra of disbelief. The sports industry machine is too big to accommodate the fans, 
and only refers to them or cares for them as a kind of marketing reflex or an afterthought. The administration of sport and its periodic crises adds to this feeling of remoteness. How many of us understand how FIFA works? Who really knows how fair play legislation works? The aura of disbelief in which fans love their teams makes for cynicism and world weariness. The Springboks provide a welcome antidote to this kind of ennui and brazen knowingness because rugby, a game of raw physicality and gladiatorial combat, lends itself to the elemental rather than the cerebral. The box and the idea of the box seems largely untarnished by cynicism. Why should this be? Perhaps this is because it's difficult to be cynical about men who put their bodies on the line with such abandon. I remember Sia Khaleesi once telling me about how painful it was to wake up on a Monday morning. He said his entire body throbbed. I imagined afterwards when listening to the interview that he sort of unloosened his limbs leg by leg, arm by arm, like a kind of marionette's limb. This is on a Monday morning, remember, when we've already forgotten about Saturday afternoon and are simply looking forward to the next one. When we're looking forward, Sia's still feeling the accumulated after-effects of back then. So it is difficult to be cynical about such a relentlessly physical game. Some of the values projected by this physicality, like stoicism and raw courage and honour among men, are largely neglected by society. We don't hear or read much about epic male feats in our politically correct and post-ironic societies anymore. Indeed, such feats might actively be frowned upon. The Springboks give us an opportunity, if only for an hour or two on Saturday afternoons, to be physically impressed by physically impressive men. Something else. In the last five or so years, Springbok rugby and the administration thereof has managed to remain relatively controversy-free. Politics, so often touched with doom when politics and sport intersect in this country, has for the most part receded. There is little debate anymore about a player's worth in the team and whether they deserve to be there, because the books have simply got on with the work of being world champions. SA Rugby has cleverly, expediently perhaps, stayed out of the limelight and allowed the box to do their talking where it matters most. Contrast this with cricket South Africa, with their endless infighting and virtue signaling. Think of the taking the Niger fuffle a couple of years back. Think of the Mark Boucher debacle. Think of CSA's endless saga of targets and interventions and racial gerrymandering. Think of Dumisa and Sebesa's laughably inadequate and badly written report after the social justice and transformation hearings. The hearings shone a light on the human cost of racism in our cricket, and therefore provided us with an opportunity to see to it that certain mistakes aren't repeated. But you also have to wonder what the worth of Insebeza's sinecure really was. Are we closer to winning a World Cup? Is our cricket culture producing a broad mass of quality cricketers out of which a Ben Stokes or Pat Cummins naturally springs? I think not. Had this made the Proteas a better team, the fans might be prepared to forgive the heavy-handed administrative interventions, 
but in actual fact exactly the opposite appears to have happened. Greater politicization of the game has made for a worse, more riven game, with consensus and camaraderie but an illusion in the happy hour of victory. But back to the box. Let's also not be naive. In a manner of speaking, the administration of rugby, which is all in male white hands, is the biggest confidence trick in contemporary South Africa, a Ponzi scheme of quite incredible reach and effectiveness. Where are the black coaches of big teams other than the national under-20 side? All the United Rugby Championship coaches, from John Dobson to Jake White, remain in white hands. Rassi Erasmus and Jacques Ninaba are in control of the national team. As interim chief executive in Yuri Roo's absence, Rian Oberholz is the most important man in South African rugby, unlike Poletsi Moseki, is the most important man, operationally speaking, in South African cricket. But the optics are good. We have a black skipper, despite the anxieties of wondering whether he will be fit for France. And we are world champions with a black skipper, at least until World Cup final day on Saturday, October 28. Such things buy you inestimable public goodwill. SA Rugby, the rugby establishment and supersport, with their cringeworthy, rampantly sentimental documentaries, have been sure to max out this goodwill over the last couple of years to the, well, max. This aside, it is also true that the box themselves play as if none of this matters, something the proteas do too. They know what it means to play for each other and be a team, which might, come to think of it, provide a lesson for all. They get on with it. More than that, they get on with getting on with it. In order for us to get on, we might get on with getting on with it too. It's the only way our fragile democracies going to survive the darkness we currently find ourselves in. Finally, a story. During the last World Cup, sometime just after the Canada game, my wife and I were driving towards the southern Cedarburg north of Ceres. It was springtime and there had been rain. The blossoms on the fruit trees, fragile pink and white, were just beginning to burst forth. The leaves on the trees were not an established green, but a frail kind of tender green you only witness once a year in springtime. We drove through soft rain. We slowed down as we approached Prince Alfred Hamlet. The school in the hamlet had a field, and at either end of the field were rugby poles, slightly inappropriately lopsided. The sight reminded you that rugby is rooted in this land. That means it is rooted in pain and dispossession and suffering. We are trying to get beyond that, to establish the basis of a more equitable, more civilized and more decent society. The Springboks can help us do this, if only for an hour or two. They can help us to go on. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. South African Standard Time.